Um, we're going to be in John 4 today. I see Ron raising up Bibles. We're in John 4 today. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will get you one. But our purpose statement says that we are here, this church is here, to help one another discover who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, to grow into Christ-likeness, and to engage a broken world with the hope of the gospel, all to the glory of God. So it's discover, grow, and engage. And part of our Sunday morning, our Sunday morning service serves part of that purpose, but it can't accomplish it all. We have to have other aspects of the church's ministry to accomplish the purposes. And one of those aspects is what we call home Bible studies, fellowship group, life group. They're, they're called all sorts of things. They are groups, smaller groups of people that meet during the week to engage the scriptures, grow in understanding and love for one another in what's called fellowship, so that we can discover what God has done for us, grow into Christ-likeness, and engage a broken world with the hope of the gospel. So... We, COVID kind of put a wrench in the works of our small groups, but we are deciding that we're going to put a wrench into COVID and restart these groups. Um, so I wanted to tell about these. I talked about a couple weeks ago and actually had some people sign up, but, but I have more information now, and, and this is growing. So we're going to have home groups in, in, in Incline, in Kings Beach, and in Carson City. So, so he, here in Incline, the Falstads and, and the Sushans, raise your hands, guys. We're going to have a group, so the sign-up sheet if you want to be an incline in that. Also an incline, um, Christine and Chad Mitchell, which are in the back over there, raise your hand, are going to be starting a group. In an incline, we already have a group of young adults with the Van Horns over here, Alyssa and Kent. Um, so, so there's opportunities if you live in an incline to join one of these groups to grow in the scriptures, grow in friendships and relationships. Also in Kings Beach, we have Alan Carroll back here. Raise your hand, Alan Carroll. Al's a retired pastor that's chosen to join us in worship. And so he's going to do one in Kings Beach if you live over there. And in Carson City, the one, the only, the amazing <laughs> Campbells. <laughs> Two. Two what? I said Campbells. We will argue later who's the most amazing. And, and Teresa and I are going to be joining them in Carson City. So... Um, Right now, that's the groups we have. We want to build more groups. That's what we have. So if you're interested in joining the group, there's a sign-up sheet I will have out there. Put your name and contact information under the group you're interested in. They will contact you. And we'd like to get a meeting before, before the Christmas holiday so we can establish what we're doing and then kick these off with a full sprint in January. Make sense? So now to, to reverse it, if you want to continue to discover who God is and what he's done for you in Christ, to grow into Christ-likeness, and to, to encourage one another to engage a broken world with the hope of the gospel. These small groups are essential. So please, sign up. Amen? Amen. Father, guide us in your word today in John 4 and teach us what you meant about worshiping in spirit and truth. So, thank you, Father. Oh, about 15, 18 years ago, at Grace Church in Reno, where I was the pastor for 23 years, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. The alarm company called me. We re-rotated who was the first one the alarm company called. It was my turn that month. So I got a phone call that the alarm's going off and the police have been dispatched. So I drive down to the church. I get there before the police. I'm looking in the window, back of the, back of the church in the preschool window, and I hear behind me a voice. Get away from that window. And I turn around, and there's a police officer with a shotgun in his hand. Um, so I said, I'm not the bad guy. So I, I let the, the, the police officer in. I had the key, turned the alarm off, which was, which was blaring, and we started walking the building. And it was a pretty large building. We started walking it looking for, you know, the bad guy. Turns out what it was was, in the end, it was a balloon floating down the hallway in the preschool that set off the motion detector. But by the time we got around to the front of the church where the worship center was, this police officer kind of relaxed and, and, and took off his, his um, um, whatever you want to call it. He became a normal person at that moment. <laughs> n n not insulting him, truly. And we were standing there at the, at, the, at the entrance into the worship center. And he goes, I've heard a lot of good things about this church. 
I've heard that it's a good teaching church, but that you guys don't worship here. Now, what does the pastor say to that comment to a man who's holding a gun? <laughs> so, um, and I, so I just had to think for a second. And I said, well, um, who determines whether it's good worship? Do we or does he? You follow me? Because you could go to certain churches and say, wow, that was lively worship. Other churches, that was very calm and somber worship. Which one fits you? And my fear is we have judged good worship. We have given our emotional state more credit than it deserves in judging whether worship is good or bad. Do you follow me? Are our emotions important? Very. You know, Jesus had great emotion on this earth. It's, it's part of being human. And we know our emotions can deceive us and mislead us. So emotions are very important. But let's not make our emotional state the primary measure by which we judge a worship that we have in this church or any church. So Christ today talks about worship. And it's a long story. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. And we're going to walk through the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And as we try and ask, what is worship? So, so to start off with, I, I want to give you my basic definition of worship. This isn't mine. Someone else said this a long time ago. But I would say worship is the, the act of ascribing ultimate worth to something. Okay? Ascribing ultimate worth to someone, something. And I believe as human beings, we are hardwired to worship. Hardwired. And, and I think every, every human being is hardwired to worship. And even, even a small population of the world, especially the United States, that is atheistic. I still believe they worship. It's in us to ascribe ultimate worth to something. What we ascribe ultimate worth to should drive us. It should um, inform every area of our life. Sometimes it's very overt, sometimes it's, it's, it's subjective. But ultimate worship or ultimate worth, we ascribe ultimate worth, is in every human being. So th this worship is not just what we claim to worship. We can claim to worship the God of the Bible, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We can claim that's, well, that's who I worship. But really it's proven by how we spend our time, our money, what we put our hopes and dreams in. It's proven by who or what we honor and give thanks to. Next week, I'm really excited because next week's message, which is not on John, it's about giving thanks, flows right from this one. So that, that I didn't design that so much as it just kind of turns out that way. I'm excited about it. So let's look at this story and see if we can put some teeth on this idea of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Because frankly, I'll be honest with you, this whole week I've been struggling with this phrase in spirit and truth. And you'll see why when I get there. Um, and what does that exactly mean? That Jesus says, something's changing. So let's, let's start there. Let's go to the background of the Jewish and Samaritan conflict. Why, why they, did they disdain each other? Jews and Samaritans disdained each other in Jesus' day. So I'm going to start with John 4, 1 through 4. I'm in Daniel 4. What, what, what am I in Daniel 4, 4? King Nebuchadnezzar, that's another sermon. John 4, 1 through 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So first of all, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is growing. So John mentions that here, that... When Jesus learned, the Pharisees heard he was baptizing, because we're going to see as we move, by the time we get to John chapter 7, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. They're fed up with him. And they put a plan together to do just that. So we're going to see the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders growing every chapter. But Jesus had to go through Samaria, it said. Interesting phrase, because guess what? He didn't have to. I want to show you this map. We tried to narrow in. I wanted to see all of it. So you in the back, 
it might be hard to see, and I apologize for that. But if you see the bottom where it says Judea, that's, that's where Jerusalem is. That is, at this point in Israel's history, that's Israel. Okay? Then you'll see up top the yellow thing where it says Galilee. That's where Jesus was born and raised. That's where the, the majority of the apostles were born and raised. And so the Jews up there would travel regularly down to Judea, down to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple. You see, worship was, was geared around the temple in Jerusalem. That was designed by God. So three times a year minimum, minimum every Jewish male had to appear in Jerusalem to make a sacrifice at the temple. That was their heart of worship. In between, is that blue or aqua? What is that? What color is that? The blue stuff. That is Samaria. Jesus chose to leave Judea, Jerusalem, and go right through, and you see right in the middle there is the city of Samaria, and to the right of that is Sukkar, or Sychar, if you want to say it. That's where Jesus ends up at the well. That's where the story takes place. But you know what an average Jew would do? A, a, a normal Jewish person, when he had to travel from Galilee to, to, to Judea? He would go up there, and you see where Jerusalem is, and you see Jericho to the right, upper right. He would actually go to Jericho, go down to the river, cross the river over to Bethany over there, Bethany east of the Jordan, go up east of the river, bypass Samaria, and come back into Galilee because we're not going to walk through that wretched Samaria and see those wretched people. We don't like them. You with me so far? But this is Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, the word that's translated had to could communicate necessity, not just necessity of geography, but necessity of a mission. I think that's what it's saying. Jesus was on a mission, and he had a date at the well of Jacob to meet this woman of Samaria. So look at the next map, if you would, just to give you a background. Do you see where it says Judah at the bottom, purple, and Israel, the red? Hello? Okay. This is an ancient map of Israel back into what's called the divided kingdom time. After Solomon was king, the Israel divided and became two kingdoms. And they never got along, ever, after the division. The northern kingdom, so this is about 950 B.C. when it's divided. For over 200 years, the northern kingdom of Israel did nothing but disobey God. And the southern kingdom of Judah did similar, but they had some good kings. And about 722, for the next 20 years after 722, God brought the Assyrians in to discipline his people Israel and took them into captivity. And typical things world rulers would do then is they would go into a place, conquer it, take many of the people out and distribute them in other conquered lands, and then take people from those other conquered lands and bring them into Israel. See, the goal here was to keep the conquered people from uniting and rebelling. So one way to do that is to mix them. You with me so far? So in 722 down to the late 600s, the Assyrian kings exported Israelites and imported people from other nations. So from that time up until Jesus' time, the people who came into Israel and the native Israelites ultimately intermarried. And one result is these people are now half Jewish and half Gentile, or a mixture thereof, and became detestable to the true Israelites. You'll see this if you want to go back into Ezra and Nehemiah and read the story as they're trying to rebuild the temple and the Samaritans are trying to stop it. You see, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is in another map. Built their own temple. They had their own scriptures. They took the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses and said, that's the scriptures. They rejected the rest of it because the rest of it talked about a temple in Jerusalem. They had their temple on Mount Gerizim, or Jerusalem, however you want to say it. So we have this competition now of where do we worship the God of Israel? In Samaria on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem where David built the temple or Solomon built the temple? That's the conflict. Now you got the history? Let's jump back into the story. 
Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. We're going to walk through this a paragraph at a time. And we'll, we'll comment, comment on some things, but I want, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus declares to Samaritans flat out, I am the Messiah, and they call him the Savior of the world. He didn't reveal this to the Israelites. He revealed it to the Samaritans. You have to ask why. And then in the middle of this conversation, he talks about what worship is, and we'll end on that. So, verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. Okay, they started their counting hours at sunrise, so six o'clock. So it's now about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So first of all, if you understood the culture of the time, this lady's coming alone when no one else is there. Why? Usually the ladies came before the heat of the day to draw water. But this lady comes when all the other ladies are gone. And we're going to learn this lady probably was not well received by the other women of Samaria because of her lifestyle. But Jesus had an appointment with her. Give me a drink, he says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then we see John's little commentary here. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, based upon everything I just told you. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that's a beautiful phrase there, because John's going to develop this. When we get to John chapter 7, we see the living water is what flows out of you as a Christian because the Holy Spirit is in you. This is what he says in John 7 about living water. Jesus says this in three chapters away. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, keep that in mind, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. By the way, living water to them it's not, some, it's not some magical phrase or spiritual phrase. It really isn't. Their phrase, living water, meant running water. A creek. That's what they, they refer to a creek as running water. This is the desert. It's arid, and creeks only ran in the springtime for the most part. After, the, after these living water, this cool, bubbling, moving water dried up, and we live in a desert, we know this, you had to go to the cisterns and the wells and the ponds to get your water. So everyone wants that living water. That's, honest with you, be honest. It's not a cool drink from a mountain stream. I know all the bugs today, just ignore that. (laughs) A cool drink from a mountain stream is so refreshing compared to the chlorine in our tap water. Do you agree? So that's the imagery they have here. So Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, if you'd asked him, he'd have given you living water. In other words, he'd have given you the best. Verse 11. We'll come back to the Holy Spirit. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. How do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? So Jacob, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're called the patriarchs. Then Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob is is a major player in the history of Israel. And the well he dug is in Samaria. And it's very, it's very, it was a treasured thing they have. They have the well of Jacob. And you claim to have living water that's better than Jacob's water. Are you greater than Jacob? So let's look at Jesus' answer. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what's the answer to her question? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Exceedingly greater. So this this rocks her world. This rocks her world. You got to realize the cultural context Jesus is sitting in here and their understanding of this well, how important it was to them. And Jesus said, every time you drink from this, you've got to come back the next day and get more. 
So, so, so imagine this, ladies, because this was the ladies' job. You don't get to go to the sink and open the tap. You don't get to flush the commode. You have to walk to the river, excuse me, walk to the well to get water. And Jesus is saying, I'll give you water, you'll never be thirsty again. Fifteen, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Just like, just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, she misunderstands the point. Happens all through John. Jesus says something, they misunderstand him. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. Implying they're living together, they're not married. Okay, what you have said is true, Jesus says to her, I, that I have no husband. The woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you come to worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's a very important theological, biblical concept there. That God used the Jew Jewish people to bring salvation to the world. Salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, and he who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, first of all, we're going to come back to this idea of worship in spirit and truth. So I didn't, we'll come back and reread that paragraph. But now Jesus gets to this place. She says, you must be a prophet because you know everything about my life, about my marriages. And so then he goes into the idea of worshiping, not on this mountain, Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. So now she ups the ante. Not simply that he is a prophet, but that he is the, excuse me, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. So she identifies the Messiah is coming. He says, I who speak to you am he. He flat out refers to himself as the Messiah Israel has been waiting for. Jesus sometimes keeps things cryptic. When there's a, there's a direct question, he sometimes skirts around it for whatever, whatever purposes. But here to this Samaritan woman who worships incorrectly at a temple. Actually, the temple's been destroyed by this time. There's, there's a ruins up on the hill. Actually, where, where the well is, they could look up on the mountain and see where the ruins were. And so, so and they worshiping. You, you don't know what you're doing. You're incorrect in your worship. We know what we're doing. Salvation comes from the Jews. But Jesus didn't choose to reveal himself as the Messiah to the Israelites. He chose to reveal himself as the Messiah to these detested people. Why? I think we can go back to John 3.16, which says what? God so loved the that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And, and remember what my definition of world was? Not my definition, John's definition. The world is the totality of the people who are opposed to God. And God loves them. So Jesus has a mission to go through Samaria with his disciples to talk to a woman that you did not do that, especially a Samaritan woman, and reveal to her, I'm the long-awaited Messiah who's come to save you. In the context of John, why? Because the Father loves you. Let's look at verse 16. No, 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 I said I've moved ahead here. Look at 27 to 30. Just then his disciples came, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They sure wanted to. Why in the world would you be talking to a woman, first of all, and a Samaritan woman, second of all? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So Jesus identified, I am the Messiah. By the way, if you didn't catch it, Messiah is the Hebrew word, Hamashiach. And then it's translated into Greek as Christos. And Christos means, the, both of them mean the anointed one. So the Hebrew word, the Greek word, all used together here. So she's going in, could this be the Christ? He told me everything about me. Meanwhile, well, I, okay, I lost my place. Where was I? 31. 28, yes, thank you. So the woman left her, I did that, okay, come see, blah, blah, blah. 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So now, now, now the Samaritans are coming. You with me now? You've got to see this because the next section reveals this. The Samaritans are now coming to see this man at this, this lady who has a poor reputation is saying the Messiah is out at the well. Let's go. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Typical of John, they misunderstand him. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is very important as we move through this, as we try and define what does it mean to worship. So what does Jesus ascribe ultimate value to in that statement? Jesus ascribes ultimate value to his father. So much so that he says, it's more important that I do his will than that I eat food that you've brought me. Can we, can we agree? If Jesus was tired, if Jesus was tired, that's why he sat down. Could we agree he was probably hungry too? But Jesus was human, like you and me. And when I'm hungry, guess which can, what consumes my mind? Solving that hunger. Um, I love my three square meals a day. But Jesus said, that's not my point right now. I have food that you don't know about. Doing the will of my God and accomplishing his work. Now, because this is a long passage, I had actually in my slides, I turned my slides in to Elena and Daryl on Thursday. So they can get all the slides ready. And then I continued to, to massage my message. And Sunday morning I wake up and I simply format my notes so they're color-coded and everything. If you looked up here, you can see all the color-coded, you know. So that just helps me when I'm looking down and know where I'm at and I still get lost. This morning, though, I, I'm, cause I'm struggling with what is this spirit and truth? What does it mean? And this morning I realized that it was a mistake for me to leave some verses out because there were so many I didn't want to take a long time to read the whole story to you because you guys can read. Whereas it was a mistake because at the heart, I think, of what Jesus means by worship, he's now communicating to these disciples. What is his food? To do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So verse 35, there will not be a slide for this reading. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Jesus now, that this is now probably winter to early spring. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I would suggest to you, and I could have the timing wrong, but I suggest to you, he sees the Samaritan crowd coming at him, which we'll see in a minute. And he says, look up and see, look. Those people coming, that's your mission field. There's the harvest. Already the one who weeps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor, for that which you did not labor. Others have labored that you may enter into their labor. I think what he's saying is, I've sowed the seeds to these Samaritans. Look, look. The will of my Father is that they know me, the Messiah. So I, I realize I'm reading into this. You have to look at it and see if this makes sense to you. But that's this morning I realized that the heart of worship is Jesus' statement to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We'll come back to that. 
Now we'll get back to the slides. So we'll look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So once again now, as John is, is bringing Jesus, the word became flesh. When he reveals that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world, he does it in a story of a woman the Jewish people would never associate with. One, she's Samaritan. Two, she's a woman. And two, she seems to be have a, a poor reputation. And that's the one Jesus goes to who needs the Savior of the world. And the rest of the people believe it. And by the way, he stayed there for two more days. So the disciples, I'm sure, are going nuts. Because this is breaking all social protocol. One of the, the Bible scholars I'm reading for this, this sermon series is a guy named Craig Keener. He's a New Testament scholar. And here's what he says about Jesus staying there with the Samaritans. For Jesus to lodge there for those two days, eating Samaritan food and teaching Samaritans would be roughly equivalent to defying segregation in the United States during the 1950s or apartheid in South Africa during the 1980s. Shocking, extremely difficult, somewhat dangerous. The Jesus of the Gospels is more concerned with people than with custom. Exactly. Th this is, Jesus has a mission to do his Father's will and accomplish the work he has given him. So Jesus had to go through Samaria because the Samaritans were the objects of God's love. And if he didn't set the tone for reaching out to those you don't care for, relate to, want to eat with, want to stay in their house, then the disciples would never catch that vision at the end of Jesus' ministry when he says, go make disciples of all nations. So that's the story. Let's get back to this idea of Jesus inaugurating a new way to worship God. And I really struggled with this this week, trying to narrow in on a certain decision, and I'll bring that to you now. So John 4.19, go there. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, so Mount Gerizim, which has been destroyed, but, but the evidence of it is still there, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So remember now, worship at this point the heart of worship at this point was to obey the law in the sacrificial system. That when you sinned, you had to offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice ultimately had to be at the temple in Jerusalem. So worship was limited in location. The temple in Jerusalem was designed such a way where, where, where everyone could come in and bring their sacrifice in the outer court. Then the priests took the blood of that sacrifice into the holy place where it was offered to God. But then there was a, a small place, 15 by 15, called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was that you all saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and it was there that the high priest only went once a year to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for all of Israel. So, so worship... It's all around a location in Jerusalem. And the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, represented the presence of God. It's very important to understand, to understand Jesus' statement here. We worship what we know to the temple in Jerusalem. Salvation is from us. So with that, now Jesus turns it all on its head. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers, and I would suggest with the overall story here is saying whether you're Samaritan or Jewish or pagan Gentile, true worshipers, whatever category they come from, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
Now, if, if you look at different translations, you'll probably see there the word spirit either has the lower s, lower case s, or upper case s. Not sure what translation you're looking at. We'll come back to it in a minute. In spirit and truth. What is, does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is making a comparison between a location where the sacrificial system must be followed to be proper worship. And you Samaritans have done it wrong. They're not worshiping in truth. The Jews were following the system that God had set up. From, you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus and see it described very clearly there. But not just in truth. Truth being how God reveals he wants to be worshipped. So we don't get to decide how we worship God. He does. We just can't come up with anything we want. The scriptures guide us. And so I'll, I'll start with truth here. John uses the word truth both to refer to scriptures and to Jesus. And in John 17, Jesus is praying to his father, and he, he's talking about his disciples. And he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. So your word is truth, referring to the scriptures and referring to Jesus. Because guess what the scriptures do? They point to Jesus. This is the written word. Jesus is the living word. And so the we worship God in truth must be according to what God has revealed in his word and in his son. But when it says worship in spirit, go ahead and put the, the screen up there, Lee, about in spirit and truth. Almost all translations say in spirit and truth with a lower case S. The NIV, in one other translation I forget right now, translates it in spirit, uppercase, capital S, and truth. Referring to whom? So is it referring to your spirit and truth or the Holy Spirit and truth? Want to take a vote? So what does John teach us, the whole book of John? It's interesting that most translators choose, and these translators aren't one person, they're whole committees, True, choose, the majority choose lower case S, referring probably to the human spirit. God is spirit. By definition, God is not physical. So by definition, God does not dwell exclusively in the Holy of Holies where I have to go once a year. He, 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 he can't be confined there. God is spirit, and he is not confined to a building. So to worship God is not about going to a location to worship. It's very important for this church here, so please listen to me. This, this is not called, okay, how do I say this? This building, 300 Country Club Drive, is not the house of God. Okay? We'll use that phrase regularly, it's even in our songs sometimes. It's not the house of God. Who's the house of God? The people are. Go to, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. You, a believer in Jesus, are the house of God. You are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. So when we gather, whether it's in this building, in that parking lot, on the side of a mountain, somewhere else, God is among his people in his house. Us. Now, by, by convenience, we must gather. You see, God has saved a people for his own possession. We can't say, well, I don't need the church, I don't need you, I worship God on my own. You've missed the point. God has saved a people for his own possession. And we must gather to be that people where God dwells to worship him. But where we do that, Jesus just said, the physical location's not the point any longer. See, God is spirit. He dwells everywhere. And his people are going to be everywhere as we take the gospel to the ends of the world. So, let's go back to spirit, capital S, or lowercase s. John talks all about the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Gospel of John probably teaches us more about the Holy Spirit than any other book in the Bible. And we're going to learn when we get there. We just saw that Jesus said, if I give you the water, living waters will flow out of you. John 7 says it's the Holy Spirit. 
we get to John 14, 15, and 16, guess what the Spirit's called? The Spirit of truth. And he will guide you into truth. He will teach you all things. So worship does not take place without the Holy Spirit. And when you come to believe in Jesus, John 7, it says that the Spirit will dwell in you and, and living waters will flow out of you. This is life that comes from being born again. So worship cannot happen without the Holy Spirit. But since most translations put the lowercase s, referring to the human spirit, it's okay, I, I need to, to see John clearly is teaching us the Spirit of God is deeply involved in everything we do when it comes to worship. But this idea of the human spirit, we worship God who is spirit. So, so my spirit, and whether we call it spirit, soul, or we saw before, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, is the core you. The core you. Who you are in your core identity, I think we could read that in here to worship God in spirit. Who you are at the heart of who you are, your soul. I, I'm not going to, we could probably define soul, heart, and spirit with little nuances differently, but I'm going to keep them together right now. And when we come together as a people of God, no matter where it is, we worship him in spirit with our core identities. And that's not necessarily about music. So, and this is a long message, and I may be confusing you, and I don't mean to. Worship is about doing the will of him who sent me and accomplishing his works. That's the heart of worship. And as the spirit of God dwells in me, has changed my core person, I'm now born again. I'm a new creature in Christ. So my spirit, which is the heart of who I am, is now designed to do the will of God and the works he's given us to do. And if we come on Sunday morning and presume this is what worship is primarily or exclusively, and we leave here and go, oh, that wasn't very good worship. That has very little to say about the team up here than it does about your walk with God, my walk with God. But if Monday through Saturday, the core being of Tony Slavin, the spirit of who I am, with the spirit of God dwelling in me, is all about accomplishing God's will and doing the works he's given me and you to do. If that's my ultimate, ascribing ultimate worth is to God, God, today I want to accomplish your will. Today I want to do the works you've called me to do. Whatever it costs me, time, money, energy, that is worship. And if my week is spent with a heart, a spirit, designed or, 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 or deeply devoted to the will of the Father, then when I come here Sunday morning with you, it doesn't matter if it's one song or a hundred songs, I can enter in to the praise and worship of our Father because my heart has been cultivated all week to that honor. Does that make sense? Honoring God with my life all week is foundational to my Sunday worship. Obedience to God's will, his commission, must be my food. Then, with my very off-key voice, God loves my worship on Sunday morning. But if my whole week is spent doing my will, and I come here, and I don't sense that emotional connection to God, is that Elena's fault? The answer is? Okay, thank you. Elena's listening. Is that God's fault? If I come here assuming the switch is going to happen when my whole week was dedicated to my purposes and think it's going to switch to where God is utterly honored by my worship, we're fooling ourselves. So definitions describing ultimate worth, we are hardwired to worship. 
And it's not just what we claim to worship, but proven by how we spend our week, our time, our energy, our prayer time, our money. That proves what's ultimate value. So Elena and Elaine are going to come up now and sing a song that, that, that we used to sing a lot. We haven't sang it in a while. And then we're going to come back up and finish this message. I thank you for being patient with me. Um, so um, hold on, because we're going to worship God through communion in just a moment. I wanted to sing this song because um, I think a lot of times we get in the motions of like standing up and singing and then sitting down and turning it off. Um, exactly what Tony was just saying about worship being part of our week more than just Sunday. And so I just wanted to spend some time. Um, you guys can stay seated and Elena and I are going to sing this song over you. Um, and I just want to spend some time in reflection about what Tony just talked about. And I pray that um, God would speak to you about um, these questions that Tony just mentioned, like, is my life for God's will right now, or am I chasing something else? So, when the music fades and all is stripped away, and it's simply cold, long it does to something that's a word that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper
please. So, you know, when you wake up Sunday morning and you don't simply review what you planned, but you change what you planned, then you come here and sometimes, I don't know how this will be received or the mood of the room, and it's pretty somber in here. So either you're saying, I wish he'd get done, or maybe you're thinking about this. So today's takeaway from this passage, as we prepare for communion, Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. The food was about doing the will of God and doing the tasks Jesus had been given. And that food, that task, was loving the lost. Thus, he had to go to Samaria to meet this lady. So I wrote this out. I'll read it as I wrote it. Is it possible that we spend our week obsessed with... The, is it possible that if we spent our week obsessed with those two things, obeying the will of God as our food and loving the lost, then Sunday morning corporate worship would be more significant and meaningful to us and to him. I titled this message, The Who, How, and Where of Worship. Who? Jesus tells us to worship the Father here. But as the Christian doctrine develops in the New Testament, we see God is a trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we worship all three. The who is the triune God. The where is 24-7. Wherever you are, the way you're living your life is an expression of worship. Then when we come here, it's a corporate thing we do together, which thrills the heart of God because we are his people. The how, to borrow a phrase from Deuteronomy that Jesus says, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's do that now with communion.